I just want to applaud you guys. We did it. We got through Exodus. Yeah? Cool. Okay. All right. Hey, you know, I think it's a big deal. I don't know how many people are like, hey, I've really, literally gone through a whole book of the Bible, especially Old Testament books, because they, they get a little lengthy. They get a little description heavy. Um, so anytime that happens, I think that's great, right? A better understanding of Exodus is huge. As you guys hopefully have seen, maybe you knew this before, but Exodus is a huge foundation for much of New Testament theology. Much of what we get from Jesus and post-Jesus points back to Exodus. If you remember, if you were with us going through our John series, how many times did Jesus just point back to like, I am the true and better, and then it was something from Exodus, like over and over and over again. Um, What's crazy is we could start next week and do the whole Exodus series all over again, and we would probably bring out way more stuff that we didn't even touch on. And that's how in-depth and it is. So I uh, encourage you to like keep that story in your mind. Go back and reread it. Um, it's just awesome and foundational. So today what we're going to do, we're concluding Exodus in chapter 40. Um, but what I want to do is kind of walk us back through a little brief recap of understanding the narrative as a whole. Because you can take each chapter and you can kind of preach it and look through it and dive into it and dissect it. But what's also important is a setback and be like, but what was the idea? What was the narrative trying to tell us? And we've been like talking about this every single time, every Sunday. Um, but we're just going to walk through it, feeding into chapter 40 today and how it ends beautifully in Exodus um, and points us to Jesus. So if you notice the simple structure, if you want to write this down, go for it. If you don't want to write it down, still write it down. Um, if you notice uh, Exodus 1 through 18, chapters 1 through 18, all deal with the exodus from Egypt. Okay, so it kind of splits into two halves almost. 1 through 18 is exodus from Egypt, and then 19 to 40 is all about the covenant at Sinai. Okay, it's all about the covenant at Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, God drops the commandments. There's these 10 commandments, and there's more commandments, which are basically these covenant terms for what God's people are committing to as he projects towards the future. And he kind of says this in chapter 19. He says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Like that's God's goal. That's what God wants with his people, okay? So that's amazing. What does that even look like? And if you're an Israelite, you came out of Egypt, you hear that, you've just been told a bunch of these commandments, you're like, okay, what, what am I going to do? Well, chapters 20 through 31 is starting to be, what does this look like? And it's not just what the people are going to do, it's going to be all centered around the God that they serve. Okay, so it's not divorced from this God that they serve, it's actually centered into it. So thus begins, essentially, this marriage ceremony that happens at the mountain. Um, And there's all these descriptions of the people, of the sanctuary of where God's going to be in the center of their camp, and the furniture in it, and what the priests will wear, and all this excitement. If you read the descriptions closely, um, like there's this cherubim that's going to be on the Ark of the Covenant. It's like this winged angel type thing on the Ark. Uh, there's this table made out of beautiful acacia wood. There's this lampstand. Listen to this lampstand description. Verse tw- or chapter 25, verse 34. On the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made, with, made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Like, 
to me, that's not just like really fine gold, like straight up poles and really like cut clear edges. It's very gardeny, right? It's very alive. It should bring this like, oh wait, why? Why would it be branches? Why would it be flowers? It, it sounds alive, and that's exactly right, right? Because the tabernacle is supposed to be like a portable Eden. It's supposed to be like a portable Garden of Eden in the wasteland. And, and God's perfect Eden was shattered years ago, and now he's bringing it as this oasis in the wilderness. And everyone's getting ready. Everyone's excited for what's happening. As we looked at last week, Moses goes up to the mountain, right? The ceremony is here. The things are being made. He goes up to make this thing official. And then, as we looked at last week, Exodus 32 happens. Have you ever been to a wedding, and the bride and groom just don't seem to ever want to come out. Have you ever seen that? Where like you're just waiting, the sun's on you, your dress pants are getting like a little uncomfortable because the seats are never comfortable, right? Like people, like your friend starts catcalling a little bit, like let's get going, you know? Somehow a beach ball gets start batted around. The DJ is like, oh man, and he starts moving like the bangers to like the top of the list, you know? Um, and then of course, everyone just starts throwing their jewelry in a fire and out comes a baby cow, right? We've all been there, right? We've all experienced this. So the people get bored. We looked at this last week. Go back, listen to it. And they get desperate, and they create an image in God's place as a golden calf. Well, naturally, as we looked at last week, God is furious, but he relents as Moses intercedes for the people. But this is key. You can tell it's a little bit different now. Okay, you can tell the relationship's a little bit different. Look at this. Exodus 33, right after the golden calf, starts out this way. The Lord says to Moses, Depart. Go from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now, if you've been paying attention, all throughout Exodus, it has always been the people that the Lord has brought out of Egypt. The people that I, the Lord, have brought out. It's over and over. I looked up the other day, there's over 87 references in the whole of Scripture about God, the Lord, bringing the people out of Egypt. But here, what does he say? These people, get out of here, the people that you brought up out of Egypt. Like, no longer. Like, these are just humans now, right? Yeah, that's huge. That's, that's a big time. So, uh, but verse 3, he says, But I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Devastated. They're at this wedding ceremony. This is about to be just so perfect. Them and God, it's perfect. And they just screwed up royally. And now God's like, ah, you just need to go because I'm not going to be with you. My presence can't be with you. He does say my angel will go before you, and he'll clear out the land for you, but my presence will not go. So the people are obviously devastated. Verse 4, and this is what you do when you're devastated, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Like, you guys know that. When you're just distraught, like, you don't wear ornaments, you know? So they know it's not the same. In fact, chapter 33 goes on to what used to happen. Okay, let me read this for you. Verse, chapter 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. Then everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at its tent door. 
Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, uh, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Like, ouch. Like, here's what used to happen. It was really cool, wasn't it? And remember, like most scholars believe this is Moses as the author of Exodus, or at least contributing the most to Exodus, like him rewriting, reliving, like, well, this is what used to happen. Uh, that kind of hurts a little bit, right? But Moses, he just could not let it go. Verse 15 or 33. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Like Moses brings out a good point, right? What's the point of going on if you aren't with us? It's you, God, that makes us your people, not us. It's not about our worship of you. It's about you accepting us. We very apparently cannot save ourselves. And God does this incredible thing. He has every right. He's God. He just got shunned by his people. He has every right to just be like, nope, that's too much. That was one too far. I'm out of here. You need to go. I'll still like send you an angel or something. Good luck with life, okay? He could have done that, but instead he does something way deeper, way more intimate. He passes by and he shares his very name. And if you notice famously, Exodus chapter 34, he passes by and he says this. This is my name. This is declaring who I am at my core. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's incredible. Remember, like ancient names, it's not just like this, um, you know, pronoun that just describes who you are. It's actually a description of your very character, your very being of who you are. So Moses, he's like, whoa, this is huge. So he snags two more tablets. The wedding is back on. Let's get this ceremony done. The covenant is restored. New tablets are written. And God is the most vulnerable here sharing his name. Now it's time to get to work. Chapters 35 till the end here is the construction of the tabernacle. Let's do this thing now. Let's do it right. Now, for the purpose of today, we're going to read some of these descriptions. Typically, when you read Old Testament, it's like, well, the lampstand looked like this and this and the blah, blah, blah. It kind of is super easy to be like, ah, get to the action. Like, let's just skip over. I don't know if you're like that, but I am. Um, but it's really actually important today that we look at some of these specific um, descriptions, and not so much for the description itself, but how intentionally God wants this to be made, and how perfect this needs to be made. So let's read some of this. This is chapter 35, verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skin and goat skin, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Okay, are you guys still with me? It's pretty, okay, good. See, I don't want you to glaze over. Like, just pay attention how intentional this is. Uh, chapter 35, verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, 
of the tribe of Judah. And pay attention, he has filled him with the Spirit of God. Okay, I've talked to a lot of people who are like, well, the Spirit of God didn't come till after Jesus. Okay, and I'm a huge like Trinity guy, and any time that the Spirit is actually named in the Old Testament, I just get, I get stoked, right? It's like he pops his little head and it's like, remember me? I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> I was here from the beginning, right? So I love it, like rare Holy Spirit mentioned in the Old Testament. And this is, this is big. He fills him with the Spirit, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. Like, do you guys remember that list of spiritual gifts? Like, I want to be a woodsman. Like, that's, that's what I want from the Spirit of God, right? Arts and crafts, stone cutting, woodworking. Like, if you think about it, God created the world. Of course, he's going to be the most creative with his tabernacle. And God always inspires community growth. Verse 34, and he inspired him, uh, the Bezalel, to teach both him and Oholiab. And so he, he like actually gets him to disciple, to reach out and to um, build a community. Chapter 36, verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Ohelulub. Oh, sorry, I don't know how to say it. And every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. I mean, talk about like community serve day at its best, right? The Spirit of God is moving. People are just stoked. They understand. Let's all come together. Let's do this thing. And the Spirit of God is infusing them to do this. And at one point, so many people were so compelled by this vision that there were too many contributions. Moses literally had to command, look at this, chapter 36, verse 6. Moses gave a command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary, <laughs> right? Like, what if we said that? Like, just stop serving, everybody, just too much, you know? For the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. I mean, the people are just pumped. The people are excited for this, right? Now, if you're here and you love curtains, like you would consider yourself like a curtain person. Like you just, you dream about curtains, you Pinterest curtains all day long, maybe you create curtains, who knows? Like this is, this is for you, okay? I'm not gonna read it, but chapter 36, eight through 19, if you just wanna like look at it and if I see you just glazing over because now you're thinking about curtains, that's okay because it's the word of the Lord. <laughs> it's awesome, right? But just, it's curtains for days, okay? They're so specific. Some have 50 clasps, some have five clasps, some are gold, some are bronze, it's ridiculous. Okay, now any woodworkers out there? Anybody? Yeah? Okay. Well, if you uh, know a woodworker, <laughs> this is a tasty dish right here. Uh, the rest of chapter 36 is all about fine acacia wood, which was most likely this, like, this tree that was there that had really, really strong wood that they could cut down in the wilderness, and it's just beautiful wood. So we got curtains, we got wood everywhere. Now the ark is made, which will hold this covenant tablets, kind of sacredly, the ancient safe for the family will kind of thing. Um, and he makes this great lampstand, then the altar, then finishing with the priests of the tabernacle. And listen to this description of what Aaron was to wear as the high priest. This is chapter 39 of Exodus. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. And write this down. If you're like, oh, I want to know more, that's really cool. Leviticus 8 and 9 are, go through way more of that ceremony. 
way more of what the priests are supposed to wear and that kind of thing. So if that pumps you up, go read that. So if we step back and we ask the question, like you're basically, God is creating a brand new nation. He's creating culture. The people have committed themselves again to center around Yahweh and live in the presence of God. This is a whole new culture. Like how would you have started it? And if it was to center around God, like this, this is, I don't know a better way to do it. The cool thing is the emphasis is only on God's presence, right? That's where it begins. And then he will commission them to go out and, and be that culture for the world. But this is huge. Remember what Moses said, chapter 13, 33 through 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us? Like that's key to Moses. You are the center of this whole thing. So chapter 39 through 43, we're almost there, guys. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. We made it. Chapter 40. Okay, we're caught up now to chapter 40. This is huge. This is the moment, okay? 40 verse 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. So first day of the first month. So this would indicate that scholars believe it's just under, maybe a week under, a full year since their exodus from Egypt. So they're almost on an anniversary from this insane life-changing event where God has freed them from slavery, and now they're here, and God says, I want to be with you fully. Okay, so now bring in all the things that you've pre-prepared, all the tables, the ark, the curtains, all this stuff. Bring all that stuff. Actually now fill the tabernacle. Get it all ready. Everything's been prepared. We just need to put it in place and wait for it to happen. So they go in. God instructs to anoint everything for it to be ready, for it to be holy. It's like just, you ever go and you're going to have company over and you just Febreze everything, like possible. You're like your armpit, like everything you can do. Right, God strikes, go and just anoint it to be holy. Wash Aaron, place him in his priestly garments. Verse 16, this Moses did according to all the Lord commanded him, so he did. Now pause real quick. With the Spirit filling all the craftsmen and the curtain workers and everybody, with this saying the Lord, Moses did as the Lord commanded him, who built the tabernacle? The people did the work, right? But God built the tabernacle. God commanded everything to happen. God infused his workers to do all the work. So it's important to note that Moses didn't create this. Moses didn't just make this box for God to fit in. God created this through his people. And now the moment we've all been waiting for, chapter 40, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Ah, can you imagine that moment? Right, this cloud, just remember, this cloud, that's all the people knew of God their whole wilderness journey up until now. Like, remember when they were fleeing from the Egyptians? What guided them? The pillar of cloud. Remember the cloud and then the fire at night? This cloud, that it, and it went and consumed the very mountaintop then that they knew, like, there's God, he's way up there. Like, man, it's huge, this huge cloud and fire and everything. They were even too terrified to look at it. This cloud now had been at the tent of meeting when Moses was there. This same cloud has now come down from the mountain and filled this place with his glory. 
The, the glory is often called, if you've heard this before, the Shekinah glory, which basically means the dwelling of God's divine presence. Like This is massive. This is huge, right? But there's one small issue. This is the moment they've all been waiting for. There's one small issue. Moses can't go in. If you read that, Moses cannot enter into this new tabernacle. He was before God at the burning bush. He was with God on the mountain, but now he can't be with him in the tabernacle. Like those meetings were all somewhat veiled in the presence of God. The burning bush had this fire in the bush. The, the, on the mountain, it had the smoke covering everything. It wasn't God's full Shekinah glory right? This was God's house. This wasn't Moses's house to go in and just have God as like a trinket or like him in the corner to say like, hey God, I'm here, like whatever. This was God's house. This was God's place. Granted, Moses had come a long way from a burning bush now to a fire that consumes a tabernacle, but also think about the cloud of God has also come a long way, but in reversing it, right? He went from a mountaintop to this mobile tent. Like, it's crazy. Like, Moses gets this, like, crazy crescendo, and God just gets to come down and meet him, excuse me, meet him on earth here. Like, if God wanted to be this old, almighty God who was just feared above all else, why wouldn't he have just stayed on the mountaintop? He would have just stayed up there where everyone was afraid to go, and it was impossible to reach right? But listen, the God of the Bible, not the judging old man in the sky that sometimes comes into our head, like he forsook the mountain top to bring his glory to be with his people. Like right there in the story, he's doing what he promised way back to Abraham and now with Moses. Remember in, in chapter 33, and this is kind of our theme for today, chapter 33, he says to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That's what he claims to do. That's his promise. So we get to the end of Exodus with this incredible scene of the people finding redemption by providing a home for their God, Yahweh. The great cloud comes down and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. This is a suitable place for such a God. Now, pause. Exodus 40 kind of comes to a conclusion, right? As we talked about today, happens to also be Palm Sunday. Okay, we always, like here at Hub City, we always be like, okay, what does this tell us about Jesus? How does this fit into the great story of the Bible? It honestly could not fit in any better. Now, remember, like the scope of the scriptures, Exodus, and the scope of it is like foundation for New Testament theology. Okay, well, um, today happens to be Palm Sunday, and as much as we'd love to take credit for Exodus 40 landing on today, let's just chalk it up as God being sovereign, because he works everything out. So this tabernacle we just walked through was the first of its kind, the first time God dwelt with his people since Eden. Do you get that? Like, that's huge. It's a big moment. The magnitude of that's astonishing. He heard his people. He met with Moses in a fashion, but instead of a lush garden that's teeming with life, God reunites with his long-lost people in a wasteland, in a wilderness, right? Years and years and years later, his son comes to, the, comes to earth, right? As recorded in the Gospels, the people of God are once again exiled from God's presence. They find themselves in the same boat, the same proverbial desert, waiting for God once again to dwell with his people. 
And then these rumors start happening about this carpenter from Nazareth. He claims to be the Son of God. But then the rumors get louder. He's performing miracles. He's speaking with authority on these sacred scriptures that they know. He's even been rumored to bring this dead guy back to life named Lazarus. No mere carpenter knows how to do that. The skeptics hear that this Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. He's going to enter through the front gates. All right, let's see what the so-called king looks like. Everyone is uproar about this Jesus. People are carrying extra cloaks. Some have gone and gotten palm branches. Look at this, Matthew 21, 8 and 9. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is here. Is this like this new exodus? What is happening here? And what's the first thing he does when he comes in? What's the first thing the Son of God does when he comes in? Matthew 21, 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? The crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. In verse 12, and Jesus enters the temple. Jesus goes into the temple. Okay, we know and we can project he's filling the temple with his glory. This is it. Like This is that moment they've all been waiting for. Everything is right. It's fitting into place, just like the stories of old, just like the, when we heard as kids the stories of Moses and the tabernacle and God's Shekinah glory coming here. It's going to be incredible. And then the verse goes on, 21 verse 12 of Matthew. He entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the temples of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, is it written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Whoa, like that was unexpected. But wait, this, this doesn't match up. Like this is the temple. This is what we've built for you. Like if, if the temple's not for, you, for your glory to fill, then how will we ever be restored to Eden? What is this temple even for? Matthew 21, 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Way back in Exodus, chapter 33, verse 14, we need to memorize it. God says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. That was the goal fascinating. From the early pages of the Bible, we've seen this promised land in Eden, and then the actual promised land to the Israelites that the people of God are promised, but something is always keeping them from it fully. In fact, there's always something to blame for it. In the garden, Adam blamed Eve, who then blamed the serpent. In Egypt, the Israelites blamed Pharaoh, and then they blamed Moses, and then they blamed God for being hungry and thirsty. So far, the problem was always outside of them. And if they just remove that problem, if their circumstances were different, they could have this perfect relationship once again with God. Does that hit home for any of us? If I just didn't struggle with that one thing, if I wasn't married to this one person, or, or maybe this is too close to home, but if COVID-19 just went away, I would have a good relationship with God right? Like what? You fill in the blank. Circumstances, internal sin, external sin, like whatever. And there's lots of things that make it hard. There's lots of things that do make it hard that we need to deal with. But at the core of it, the people, as we're learning, they always believed that it was outside of them. 
We don't have to look past chapter 40 of Exodus to, get, uh, to, get to, to see that Moses could not enter. They did everything right, and he could not enter. In Jesus' day, the religious leaders were trying to do everything right, but when Jesus shows up, he says, you're missing the point. The problem is not how it looks on the outside. They did everything right, but there's still something keeping them from a perfect reunion of God and man. See, in the story, no one was keeping Moses and the Israelites out of the temple. They couldn't blame anyone anymore. It was something internal. It was something inside. They couldn't fix themselves enough to be worthy of God's presence. But now, enter Jesus. The perfect people, the religious leaders who have set themselves up to have places of honor because of their good deeds, Jesus just sent them away. He drove them out of the temple. Instead, the cast out, the forgotten, the lame, the blind, and the hungry are welcomed in. Jesus here is reversing the Shekinah glory, right? From mountaintop to the ground, Jesus here is reversing it. He's reversing what the dwelling of God's divine presence looks like. Jesus now embodies God's glory, veiled like the cloud, but in his human flesh, and he's bringing it to his people. God's glory is now outside of the temple, in exile, with his people, showing them the way home. And that's exactly what he has for his people. Finally, no more wilderness. No more grand temples or religious duties. He's giving them a home. Jesus comes to tell the good news of a forever home for the homeless, a final resting place for the weary traveler. See, listen, we all live in the Exodus story. It's our story. We're slaves to sin. We were freed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed to a whole new way to live daily with the presence of God. That's the narrative of Exodus. Jesus is that presence today. But remember how he looked at all the descriptions of the temple? Remember how it drew the people and it compelled the people in? Listen to this. The crazy thing is Jesus, there's no description of Jesus that's flashy like the temple. There's no descriptions like Jesus is like the temple furnishings. There's no wild that, uh, descriptions that he is just, just teeming with life person. In fact, look at this. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. But Colossians 2.9 says, But for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Like nothing was compelling about his outside, but in him was the full, fullness of deity dwelling in him. The story of Exodus points us to Jesus. Jesus is the way home. And if you believe that today, I want to read this over you. John 14, this is what he told his followers. John 14, 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you in my Father's house, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now you might find yourself like Thomas, being like, wait, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our forever home is with God in glory, and the way is Jesus. And all this is able to happen because of Jesus' death and resurrection, which we get to celebrate every day. 
but really we get to focus on next Sunday. As we enter into Holy Week, I just want to ask and kind of pray this over all of us, that we have a posture of awe in a God who at one point dwelled in a perfect garden. At one point, he dwelled in a magnificent tabernacle in the middle of a wilderness. At one point, multiple unfathomable temples full of riches made specifically for him that that God would choose me, that that God would choose you for his spirit to dwell, to bring his Shekinah glory to you and to me. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul brings this out. He says, do you not know? Do you not get it yet? You are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. Like that he would look upon us feeble humans who are prone to wander and say, I want them. I want to dwell with them. These are my my people. These are my people, not because they are better than others, but because they consider themselves already dead and I have come to bring them life. That is why they are my people. And this life is found first and only in the perfect love of Christ for us. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And how then it's only because of that first that we are able to lay down our lives for others. The Exodus story is a narrative that we as humans can all relate to. But Jesus is the answer to why it all matters. And that is why it is to him that we give him the glory and all the praise today. So will you guys respond with me? Will you respond to that? Looking at Exodus, looking at 40, looking at Jesus in the temple and seeing him say, now I want to bring that to you. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I want to fill you with my spirit. That's incredible. We need to worship him right now. Like, there's nothing more to be said. We're going to sing praises to him. We're going to pray to him. He created this way to have this communion with him, right? We're going to give our riches away because we just want to serve our city and bless those around us, right? Because remember, the, the, the religious leaders, this hits me a lot, right? The religious leaders, they were standing in the temple. They were well taken care of. They were fine, but who was on their doorstep? The lame, the blind, the needy, right? And what is Jesus? The first thing he does is he lets people in and heals them. That's huge, right? And we do whatever we can in our city to serve our city. And we're going to receive the good news because this is all possible because of Jesus' death and resurrection. We've prepared communion safely for everyone. Just go up one at a time. Um, And it's just so beautiful to think about Jesus on the night he was betrayed, to look at his followers and say, you don't get it yet. But listen, when you, this bread, this is like my body. It's going to be broken for you. Share this among each other. This, this wine, this, we, have, we have juice, but this juice, wine, uh, this is going to be like my blood spilt for you, washing you clean. And whenever we receive that, we get to give him praise and honor for that. I want to pray for us. Let's respond to the good God that we serve.